Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey, 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 welcome. Welcome to our Wednesday show. We're coming on early for you. We've got uh, a great show lined up, and the reason why we're on early is because our guest is over in the UK. Uh, I'm real excited about this. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. And you can find us at the at the uh, California Haunts Radio website at www.californiahauntsradio.com. Or if you're interested in paranormal stuff and ghosties and things like that, you can find us at our regular website at www.californiahaunts.org. We are a paranormal group based out of Sacramento, California, 45 strong up and down the state of California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Hawaii. Um, what, what can I say about today's show in that, except that I know, you know, this kind of thing's a touchy subject with people now, you know, because, you know, of all the stuff that's getting pulled from Disney and whatnot and stuff like that. But, you know, when I, when I was growing up, my father, who was born in 1926, had gone to, I, I don't know if he had attended the, uh, the, the circus side shows, but he really knew about them. He knew of them. He was really interested in them. Interested at the point that as I was growing up, he had books and books and books on it. So I, I, so I read up on this stuff. And it was fascinating to me, you know, from Tom Thumb, the elastic skin boy, uh, the bearded lady, those types of people. And, um, to find this gentleman, to find John Wolf, and the fact that he wrote a book about all this stuff is just is just exciting to me because it takes me back to reading this, you know, reading about my childhood. You know, back then too, and we'll talk about this with Mr. Wolf. You got to remember that they didn't have the programs that they have now for people, okay? You know, people with disabilities and stuff. So they had to make money somehow. They had to make a living, and this is this is how they did it. They did it by by being in the circuses. So. When you think about the woke culture right now, there's there's nothing wrong with what they did. It's just it's just it was just life at that t- that point in time. Anyway, I want to shut up about this so that you guys can 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 hear what John has to say. <laughs> okay, I'll talk. All right, guys, here we go. Hello. 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 How, How are, are you? you doing? I'm good. good. How are you? I'm really good. Can you hear how's me? Okay. We- How, yeah. How's the weather over in the UK? Oh, dreary. Dreary as usual, but it's all right. <laughs> well, we're overcast too today. We kind of had some rain this morning. Good stuff. Thanks so, so much for having me. me on. Oh, absolutely. I'm excited about this. So tell me about you. About me? Well, I'm I'm North London born and bred. Um, and I suppose you could say I've had a freakish fascination with the history of the freak show ever since I was about... I think it was about 10 years old. There's an amazing film by David Lynch, The Elephant Man. Um, And my mum showed me this film when I was 10. And I remember at the time being terrified and fascinated in equal measure. And it planted this seed, which sprouted when I was doing my PhD and I explored freak shows and it ultimately led to this book. So I've kind of been immersed in this stuff for for, for quite some time. Um, And I spend my days writing history um, and uh, yeah, living it up in London. 
Well, it is fascinating stuff. And like I said in the intro, you know, now with the culture the way it is, people don't realize that that's how life was back then. And like I said, these guys had to make a living, and that's what they did. You know, because there, there was no, there, there wasn't the help they have. There, there wasn't the pick up the phone and call somebody that you know to help you with your disability or whatever. I mean, that's that's how it was. Yeah, and I was really, I was really pleased to hear hear you say that. It's, I think, it's a mistake to apply like our twenty first century lens, perspective, and and privileges onto the past. You know, lots of these performers, their options were destitution, dependency on family or indeed in Britain in the workhouse or America on the state, which wasn't secure, or becoming active economic agents, performers, celebrities, respectable celebrities in many cases, in the world of the freak show. And so they didn't have the choices available uh, necessarily that uh, uh, are available today. Tell me about um, your book. I mean, you you wrote this book. How, How was it to research it? I was amazing. I mean, I, I spent a fair bit of time in the States traveling around North Carolina, um, Bridgeport, Connecticut. Um, and the fascinating thing about the freak show, it was it was it was truly international. And when we think like freak show, sideshow, we tend to think of this sort of murky marginal affair where exploitation occurred in the 19th century. There was certainly exploitation. There was also mm-hmm. empowerment. And this was at the center of popular culture, respectable, professional, commercial, res- popular culture in America and in Britain. And indeed, our great, our two great nations met within the, the arena of the freak show. And so for me, researching this and kind of going beyond the, the conceptions of this, this dark, shadowy world of the freak show and coming across real empowering human stories of people with disabilities who turned... Uh, their bodies into their greatest assets was actually really quite powerful and, and liberating and uh, uh, an empowering um, uh, experience. Who do you, uh, out of all the people that, that that were in those shows, who who stands out the most to you? Oh, it's such a hard question. I mean, <laughs> it, it, you know, there's so many fascinating characters. And, and what I sought to do in the book was mm-hmm. by kind of looking at human stories Uh, through the ages so we could get a clearer idea of the broad history of the freak show from its roots right in the beginning of uh, the medieval period in England through to its heyday in the 19th century. Um, So I was kind of trying to chart this broad history of the freak show, asking what does this tell us about the world in which these freak performers were operating? Um, And in kind of charting that long history, I came across so many like fascinating freak performers. Um, One of my personal favorites uh, is actually outside of the 19th century, a guy called Jeffrey Hudson, um, who was a person of short stature in 1626 was served Uh, in a pie to Queen Henrietta Maria uh, of Britain. Um, And he had this sort of fascinating, uh, incredible life. He went from being a court dwarf, paraded to royal guests, uh, to becoming a fighter during the English Civil War. He fought for the royalists against the parliamentarians. Uh, He murdered a man. He was banished. He was captured by Barbary pirates. Um, He was enslaved, tortured. Uh, and spent his days, um, or the last part of his days, um, uh, in a prison in in London. So he had this sort of fascinating kind of history. And while he wasn't a freak performer 
in the kind of 19th century sense, uh -huh. his story set, sets us up for understanding uh, how the freak show evolved. Um, so Jeffrey Hudson would have to be one of uh, one of my favorites. Sounds cool. I've never heard of him. I'll have to I'll have to get your book and, and you know, really read and read and read because I know I've got, I've got books from the past that my dad had. You know, they're still up on my shelf, in fact, you know. Um, you know, I just found it fascinating to see some of them. I, I don't know if you had any research on the, on the elastic, skin, elastic skin boy. I mean, that was crazy to, to, to see how he could pull his skin down. Yeah, I mean, the, the sideshow had so many different types of uh, freak performers. The man with the elastic skin, so-called fat ladies, bearded ladies. Um, uh, you know, you had all sorts of, of sort of different kind of freak show performers. Um, and one of the things that was tricky was really kind of separating the fact from the fiction so you could mm -hmm. actually tell these human stories. Um, and the Elastic Boy is one case where I couldn't quite get beyond the, the kind of fiction to the fact. Mm -hmm. um, but this was the world. It was populated by wondrous um, kind of strange phenomenon. Um, and people people made money off this and people flocked to this. In the case of like the bearded lady, I, I don't know, you know, her her background but i mean was she actually bearded or was or was it because you know it's a, the the circus is the circus so i mean what was what, 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 what did she actually have a beard or was, or was it a man no absolutely you had uh i mean the thing about the bearded lady was that that was a category for loads of different types of performers <laughs> yeah. um and yeah quite i mean i i focus in my book on on the story of, of one woman called julia pastrana who was billed as the baboon lady or the bear lady um, and she had a genuine beard. She had um, hair uh, over her body. Um, and she was displayed first in America uh, and then in uh, right. England and then across Europe. And her story was really kind of tragic in many ways because she was exploited by her showman, a shadowy guy called Theodore Len, who actually married, married Julia Pastrana and she gave birth to a baby boy born with the same congenital deformities uh, in Russia. Now, mother and child died shortly after a childbirth and her husband come widower decides to embalm Julia Pastrana, mummify her and his Jeez. dead child and continue on the display around Europe um, in a sort of dark turn to the phrase, the show must go on. Right. Um, so, yeah, she had a real beard and people could see her living and dead in the 19th century. Very interesting. Um, which circus do you think tr um, treated them the best? Which one? Sorry? Which one do you which, which circus do you think um, treated them the best? Um, I think. Oh, it's very hard to say. There wasn't necessarily one organization Mm -hmm. one organizational circus that you could say they were the kind of they they were the 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 most uh, benign right. i mean what what you find is certain showmen treated performers uh, very well because frankly it wasn't really in their interest to treat their their performers badly because the performers they right. also had agency they could go elsewhere right um and it wasn't always a case of like baddie or goody you know you've mm -hmm. got someone like pt barnum right um who has a sort of very sort of morally ambiguous past. Um, and yeah, so it's hard to sometimes point to like, oh, they were good or, or they were bad. It, the, the, the two sort of intermingle sometimes. Right. 
who do you think? And I mean, everybody hears about General Tom Thumb. I mean, he, he has to be the most popular um, circus. I'm going to say freak, but circus act of all time, you know. And mm. and um, then then you also hear about the uh, the the I can't think of the the, the Wolf Boy. I think it's the, ah, wolf, the wolf Boy, right? The Wolf mm. Boy. You know, so you hear about those. But what, which one do you think, you know, out, out of that, who who do you think, you know, had had the worst deformity? Well, the Elephant Man, maybe, who had the worst deformity that was, that was on tour? Mm. I mean, certainly, uh, and we can come back to General Tom Thumb because his story is really interesting in terms okay. of the history okay. of the Freak Show. Okay. Uh, but in, in terms of, like, severe deformities, Joseph Merrick, a.k.a. the Elephant Man, without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, lumps of protruding flesh over his body, uh, a, a limp, deformed uh, hip bones. Um, he was really the sort of gothic Victorian mm -hmm. uh, freak performer. And, and his exhibition was constantly closed on the grounds of public decency. Um, and it's, it's sort of quite interesting, his story. And I, I explore this in my book because he's often held up as the case of you know, a an exploited freak performer who was treated terribly in the freak show um, and who li lived a miserable, miserable life. And actually, his story is much more complex. People often forget that he wrote an autobiography himself. We have his own voice, mediated for sure, but his, his, his voice nonetheless. And he makes clear that when he was growing up, because of his extreme deformities, he could not find any work. No one would hire mm -hmm. him. He was uh, contained in the, the workhouses, these Dickensian, horrible houses of despair. And he decided to enter the freak show. And he claims that he was treated well in the freak show. And indeed, his showman claims that he treated him well in the freak show. And it was only in the late, 18, uh, late 19th century, in around 1886, that Joseph Merrick went into the London hospital uh, to be looked after. And I put looked after in quotation marks because the argument emerged from his London showman that when Joseph Merrick was in the world of the freak show, he earned his own money. He was his own man. He had an element of agency and economic independence. Uh -huh. When he was in the in the hospital, he lost all independence. He was still paraded as a freak to medical men. Photographs were still taken of him. And when he died, his skeleton, he was dissected and his skeleton was bleached. Um, so his story takes this, this kind of the, the tensions between empowerment, exploitation, coercion, control. Uh, they emerge even in, in one of the, the, the sad stories, such as, as Joseph Merrick. So it's a kind of complex terrain. Right, right, right. As you mentioned, Tom Thumb, let's see if mm. you can tell his story. Well, you see, I love General Tom Thumb because, I mean, in my, I, I made this point in my book that um, you've got kind of three people that really make the, the, the make the freak show. General Tom Thumb, P.T. Barnum, Queen Victoria. Mm -hmm. And those three all work together. Now, you know, when, when Barnum discover, discovers uh, Charles Stratton, he's four years old. This is a four-year-old child, 25 inches tall. And Barnum decides he's going to embark on an experiment, what he calls an experiment. And he takes Charles Stratton. He Well, he takes Charles Stratton, changes his name to General Tom Thumb, creates this persona, inflates his age from four to 11 years old, and claims he's an English dwarf rather than an American dwarf. 
because English had a bit more kind of exoticism. Right. And he takes him to his American museum in New York. And almost overnight, General Tom Thumb becomes an instant sensation. People love him. People flock to see him. And such was the success that he's brought over to Britain uh, in 1844. At this point, he's only six years old. He's a great performer. He's comical. He can deliver dialogue. This this child is an actor. He's a he's a skillful actor, and he wows Queen Victoria. And Queen Victoria endorses the freak show. Barnum uh, mercilessly exploits the meeting of General Tom Thumb and Queen Victoria and unleashes what the press refer to as deformitomania in Britain. And what Charles Stratton did through his skill and through the skill of Barnum was almost overnight transform the fortunes of the freak show. Because before that point, the freak show was seen as stigmatised as um, as uh, grotesque, as a marginal form of entertainment. General Tom Thumb made it respectable, he made it fun, he made it commercially viable. Kings and queens of Europe loved him, he met the presidents of America, he became one of the world's first international celebrities. So he shows us the transformation of the freak show into this popular form of entertainment. And crucially, he reminds us that these freak performers were actors, you know, they weren't, they didn't just sort of stand there aimlessly and people gawped at their body. Mm-hmm. No, that didn't happen. They had a persona, they had a performance, um, they played a part and General Tom Thumb was brilliant at that. So I really love General Tom Thumb, Charles Stratton for that. <laughs> he married, didn't he? Yeah, he married another person of short stature, Lavinia Warren, 1863, at the height of the American Civil War. President uh, Abraham Lincoln takes time away from uh, you know, military strategy to meet the happy couple who marry in New York. It's splashed across the press. And then the, the couple go on a world tour and a honeymoon tour. And they even, even apparently have a child. Um, and this, of course, was a typical, well, not of course, but this was actually a Barnum humbug, a bit of a hoax. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, they were renting babies from different foundling hospitals across <laughs> Europe and displaying them as, as their own. Um, and Barnum, in the end, kills off the baby by saying it died of an inflammation of the brain. So you have bachelor Tom Thumb, married Tom Thumb, right. father Tom Thumb, uh, right. and rich Tom Thumb. And then um, I know what happened a lot later was the world's tallest man, too. He had um, the story that, that I read on one of those guys was that he died because his shoe didn't fit well his shoe <laughs> it was an ill-fitting yeah. shoe yeah i i think that's that's, that's a load of rubbish <laughs> <laughs> it's, but, it's just fascinating like you say the stories that 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 these guys perpetuated to explain you know why you know the, the, either they quit or or some you know something else happened Mm. Yeah, I mean, the the freak show thrived off uh, humbug, exaggeration. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole thing was a was a performance, and and P.T. Barnum was was great at that. Um, and that's kind of what makes it so fascinating. Because in the course of my research, it was trying mm-hmm. to go beyond. You know, it was trying to understand that fakery and what that fakery meant in a historical context, but also to get to the person behind the performance. Um, and when you do that, you find, you know, these incredibly incredible tales of uh, love, romance, uh, tragedy and triumph. 
uh, and stories that should be told and they haven't been told properly um so yeah you know it's a yeah it's a, it's a rich field um when you talk about a lot of these guys these people performing in in the royal courts mm. how did that work i mean you see movies where of course they, they come running in and they're doing flip-flops with, 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 with the funky hat on and all that but how how, how are they generally generally used as performers so in the early modern period um so way before the 19th century sure uh, in in european courts it was actually con it was a fashion to have so-called siamese twins what we call conjoined twins giants so-called giants uh, so-called dwarves that was somewhat of a fashion um, right. and in the royal courts of europe they would actually um trade in different dwarves um, it was kind of a badge of honor to to have a dwarf within within the royal court. And so someone like Geoffrey Hudson, he was he's kind of adopted um and served to the king and queen, King Charles the First, in this baked pie. And he became a feature of of the court household. So that was really common in the early modern period. And then as we jump into the nineteenth century, the kind of tradition continues with Queen Victoria. Now, We've got a very clear idea of Queen Victoria as quite a stern monarch, the widow of Windsor, who was in years of grief following the death of her beloved Prince Albert. But actually, she was a great freak fancier. Buckingham Palace became a revolving door for freak performers throughout the 19th century. And she would write about these in her diary. Um, so she met in the 1840s Highland dwarves, Scottish dwarves, German dwarves, General Tom Thumb on three occasions. <laughs> she met uh, the conjoined twins, Millie and Christie, um, all sorts of freak performers. And, and she loved it. Um, and because of her love for the freak show, that helped give it the respectability mm -hmm. um, in the broader sort of social setting, which meant more people came uh, to, to the freak show. Why do you think people were so fascinated with with the freaks? Mm. Yeah, it's a million dollar question. I mean, I, I think this is not a very sort of historian's answer, but I think there's something in us which is always interested in that which is different, uh, that which is other, that which falls outside the remit of normalcy. And in the, the 19th century, these distinctions between man, female, um, normal, abnormal, they were becoming entrenched uh, and debated. So anyone that stepped outside of that was a source of interest. But also, you know, people had more money in their pockets, more time to enjoy leisure, um, which kind of created this fertile entertainment industry uh, that allowed the freak show to grow. You also had you know, technological advances, which meant that you know, before if a freak performer was born, they tended to be kind of displayed within their locality. But with trains mm -hmm. and steamships, they could travel, they could crisscross the Atlantic, um, bringing their difference um, to, to people from uh, around the world. And then you've got the rise of medicine, um, interest in anthropology and ethnography. And the freak show became a site where not only people could be entertained, but they felt they could learn something about the body about um, people from different countries. You know, there was a great fascination with so-called exotic freaks, uh, so-called African savages or cannibals, ethnographic exhibitions, we would, we would refer to them today. So people came to be entertained. They also came to, to learn something 
as well. There's all these factors played together to make the freak show this you know, popular form of entertainment. What's the earliest occurrence of of a freak? I hate to say the word freak, but what's the earliest occurrence of of a freak in, in history being you know exploited or, or used? I mean, it goes it goes way back. Um, you know, the the ancients, the Romans used to um, get get people of short stature to fight in gladiatorial contests, throw them around uh, oh, the that's ring. Fair. The, huh. the, yeah, you know, right. <laughs> The, the Egyptians, um, the Greeks, they were all fascinated with, with those deemed different. Um, I think as a form of entertainment, we start to see it emerge kind of around the 11th century um, when freak performers were connected to traveling fairs, these ancient traveling fairs, which would traverse the UK, traverse America, bringing um, goods to be sold, but also entertainment. And at those fairs, you start seeing people of short stature, so-called giants, people from uh, abroad uh, who were shown as examples of, of um, uh, difference. And people started to pay money to, to see these people. Um, I do want to pick up, though, because you're, you're absolutely right to note that 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 kind of the difficulty with the language. You don't want to use that term freak. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's really sensitive. And how I've approached that in my book is to draw a distinction between the freak and the freak performer. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the freak is an act. The freak performer is an actor. The mm -hmm. freak is a social construction right. brought to life by the freak performer. The private individual had a life off stage. Um, so I think that's really sensitive to, to, to mention that. And I, that's how I've sort of navigated uh, that linguistic difficulty. Um, I had a question and lost it. <laughs> um, when you look at the freak performers, and uh, did they st did, did, again? You know, you mentioned this at the beginning of the show, but were how did they end up with, with the circuses? I mean, did, did they search out these these circuses, or did you know somebody like P.T. Barnum hear about them, maybe living in a village, and then went and you know went out and offered him a job? Yeah, great question. I mean, there were so many different ways. P.T. Barnum used to kind of hire um, freak hunters to to source out um those who were who were deemed different and persuade them to come join his circus um sometimes he did that himself as in the case of general tom thumb other times he sent agents uh, to, to to do that sometimes freak performers would put themselves on stage um mm -hmm. an, er an early freak performer a guy called daniel lambert who aged 32 was um 52 stone um sort of an early fat man of the later American sideshows. And he realized that he worked in the prison. He was a jailer. Mm -hmm. And he realized when he retired uh, that because of his extreme size, people were coming and staring at him anyway. So he was like, well, why don't I make some money from this? Why don't I put myself on display? Um, and so he did it himself. So there were kind of different ways in which in which people would come to the freak show. Sometimes parents put their own children on display. Millie and Christine conjoined uh -huh. twins born from North Carolina. Initially, their parents, uh, uh, oh, have I got that right? I might have slightly misremembered that. Um, maybe a bad example to cite. But there are certainly examples of parents putting their children on display. Uh -huh. Oh, Anna Swan. That's who I was thinking of. Uh, a giantess um, who who retired at, uh, in Ohio. Her her parents put her on display um, when she was a child. So, family members, 
showmen, um, agents. They could all all kind of bring the bring the freak show, bring the freak performer into the freak show. It's just fascinating because some of it that went on. I mean, this was nor you know like when you talk about the pinheaded people, you know, stuff mm. like that. Some of that's the norm though in, in, in some of those third world countries. Mm. But to, but to, but to like the like the rest of the world, it's it, it's odd. Yeah, I mean, it it still continues. And mm -hmm. one of the points I, I I sort of make in my book is we have the heyday of the freak show in the nineteenth right. century. This is when it's the apex, and kind of after the First World War in particular, um, the freak show as an institution starts to starts to decline. Mm -hmm. Yet the freak show lives on. Um, and as you say, with it was your 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 father, right? My dad, yeah. Your dad, right? So you know, mm -hmm. your your dad went to freak shows. They continued uh, in America. They continued in Britain, um, and they have continued to this day um, as a form of entertainment in a way they were in the nineteenth century. But also, they've slightly changed. I mean, if you think the key ingredients of the freak show was difference, voyeurism, sensationalism titillation often with the body at the center of that we have the freak show in different forms today you know are jerry springer or jeremy carl in the uk mm -hmm. like these all involve like the display of the bewildered or people deemed slightly different outside the norm for our voyeuristic um sensational pleasure you know the freak show sort of metamorphosized into different right. forms today right and then um, I guess I guess modern medicine has had a lot to do with it too, yeah, because absolutely. I mean you, you don't get the you, you don't get the same diseases that, that that you got back then. Yeah, modern medicine has has um, uh, sought to correct um, bodies deemed different, but also modern medicine had a role in killing the popularity of the freak show because as medicine started to understand. The, the physical differences on display it killed the wonder you know before showmen could make up fantastical stories about sure. why someone was tall or why they were short whereas when medical men say oh no that's because of this condition or that condition mm -hmm. it, it it kills the one it's no longer a, a mysterious it's no longer exciting um and as they killed the wonder they also increasingly appropriated um, bodies deemed different. So you see freak performers leaving the stage of the freak show and entering mental asylums or hospitals or the laboratory um, to, to be corrected. Um, and that was another sort of trend that helped kill off uh, the freak show. My other question here is, did they marry each other? Yeah. Yeah. So Anna Swan married... Uh, uh, he actually fought in the, for the Confederates during the American Civil War, a guy called Captain Bates, and they married in London in 1871. Uh, Maximo and Bartola, who were described as pinheads or known as the uh -huh. Aztec children, they married um, in 1867. And interestingly, they were possibly brother and sister, but they were legally married in a sort of freak show publicity stunt. Um, I cover that in my book. Uh, so, yeah, really common. But it was also common for freak performers to marry uh, people outside of the world of the freak show. So Chang and Eng, the kind of original Siamese twins, twins yeah. they married two uh, sisters from uh, North Carolina in 1843. And they, they, they settled down 
uh, as farm owners, slave owners um, in the American South. Uh, so yeah, marriages, love, all, all happened in the world of the freak show uh, and outside. Was it hard to separate the, the the fantasy part from the truth when you did your research? Yeah, yeah that was really hard. Um, that was really hard. And sometimes, sometimes it was almost impossible. Um, and in a way that was okay because the fantasy was a mirror. It offered a mirror to society at the time. So you could still learn something. Um, and then, you know, in my, in my research where possible, I tried to, to, to give the freak performers a voice. So if they left letters or diaries, they're very few and far between, but any sort of trace of their voice I honed in on, um, and you can using newspapers and other primary materials, you can start to reconstruct their life, what happened, their humanity behind the performance. Um, but sometimes fact and fiction intermingle. And, you know, that kind of distinction between the freak performer mm -hmm. as a, a, a as a private individual off stage and the freak as a performance on stage, they could merge. Um, and the two were very hard to separate. Now, were they able, you know, beyond the circus atmosphere, were they able to go, say, go out to restaurants and whatnot, you know, without being ridiculed? Um, yeah, so it, it depended. Someone like Julia Pastrana, um, the bearded lady, so-called uh -huh. baboon lady, uh, her husband, come manager, didn't want her to show her face outside of uh, Which the Which makes sense, right. Yeah, and he'd have her cover her face. Um, you know, quite a bit of control there. Uh -huh. um, so she she couldn't. Someone like General Tom Thumb, you know, wherever he went, he was an international celebrity, so he would be gawked at. People would run up to him, kiss him, hug him, pick him up. So life for him was hard. Um, but you do have cases like uh, Chang and Eng who really become integrated within the community they settle down in. Um you know, th th these are two conjoined twins from uh, Siam, today's Thailand, mm -hmm. you know, ethnically different, who settled in the American South, were respected by their neighbors, um, were successful farmers, property owners and slave owners. Um, and, you know, I looked at correspondence between their neighbors and their friends, and you wouldn't know they were corresponding with, with the, the Siamese twins of the freak show. There was a level of acceptance. Right. So, someone like uh, Anna swan uh, uh the, the so-called giantess as she was growing up because of her extreme height she really struggled to find acceptance she was bullied at school um you know everything was too small for her you know the world was not designed for her um and so ironically she found normalcy in the freak show um and so you know life was really tough for people um and it it did depend but on the whole they were you know they had bodies deemed different and so they were mm -hmm. marked as different if they're walking on the street or if they're performing on the stage well that's fascinating about um the siamese twins because especially like living in living in a rural area because i mean you know that would tend to be yeah. a hard area to live in because people are you know predispositioned to to believe what they're going to believe and they're god-fearing people and, and whatnot and, and you know just to see that you know i'm not trying to be an idiot about it but i'm just saying you know no you're right yeah i completely agree i mean it's yeah 
you know it, it, you touch on a really good point and the the, the level of acceptance um it only went so far i mean so when they died in 1873 there was an interesting kind of shift if you like and their neighbors and their doctors um and people who were seemingly nice to them started to try and um essentially get their bodies so they could pay they they could send them off and get money for their bodies to be sent uh, for dissection which did actually happen um so there was always that sort of interest in the difference and an opportunity of making money off these people but you know changaneng uh, achieved a level of 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 uh, acceptance in the american south yeah um which is yeah quite remarkable when you think about it. it is remarkable yeah it really is remarkable um do you in your research did you did you find that these that that these circus these performers um did you find that they they enjoyed what they were doing at the circus or, or was it just something they did was it just a job or what or did they actually enjoy it um it's really hard to tell mm-hmm. because so 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 often they didn't leave um you know their sort of first-hand accounts of it i mean someone like joseph merrick in his autobiography he right. said uh he you know he was treated well in the freak show it's kind of all we get um general tom thumb the length the 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 span of his career and the amount of performances he did suggests that uh you know he probably did well it's hard to say he was Uh doing it out of necessity as well right they had no choice really he had no choice there were points when he was very sort of downheartened about it some people have said that he quite enjoyed it it, it, it's really hard it's really hard to say i my guess is it's it's not that that much different to the entertainment industry today uh-huh. like you know sometimes performers they enjoy singing sometimes sure. it's a pain in the ass <laughs> yeah. sometimes they're exploited sometimes yeah. they're not sometimes they yeah. find fame sometimes they don't i think it's kind of similar now what was their schedules like i mean how that they must have been on the road a lot yeah lots of travel lots and lots of travel um and you know travel at that time was uh not the easiest thing to say the least and usually what would happen is they would um perform in major cities and travel from one major city to the other stopping off along the way to perform in smaller towns and you know it could be grueling i mean they could be on on display from you know you know till 10 o'clock at night you know from 10 a.m in the morning um they were there to make money um, and they would put themselves on display as as much as possible. And, you know, it's interesting following the lives of of their journeys because you realize just how transitory that existence was. Often they didn't really have established routes. Um, often they were living slightly on the periphery. Um, and, yeah, they grueling schedules grueling schedule general tom thumb in particular worked very very hard from a very young age with shows throughout the day evening performances um and very few days off so yeah this wasn't wasn't an easy life there's not much much opportunity for rest and how much money money did they actually make so it depended i mean chang and eng for example 
they made enough money that they could retire from the freak show, albeit temporarily, mm-hmm. um, and buy land and open uh, their own business um, in North Carolina. So they made, you know, through their own kind of um, financial now, they made a fair bit of money. General Tom Thumb, he 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 built a, a mansion in Bridgeport, Connecticut, on the proceeds of his wealth. His mm-hmm. parents got wealthy because of the wealth of General Tom Thumb. Towards the end of his life, however, he had spent most of it and uh, he had some debt. So he gained it and he lost it. The elephant man, Joseph Merrick, um, he had saved some money. He was robbed by an unscrupulous showman um, on the continent in Brussels. So, you know, sometimes they could make a lot of money and be quite wealthy. Other times they struggled to get by. Other times they... They were exploited uh, and lost what little money they made. So, you know, it's, it's kind of hard it, hard to generalize. Some do very well, some some not so. I well. would think it would work kind of like the, the like the celebrities work now. I would think, I would think that you have your A list freak performers, and then it goes down from there. Yeah, quite absolutely. And on the you know A listers, general Tom Thumb, right. Um, maybe a B-lister sounds a bit harsh, but it's like Julia Pastrana, <laughs> right. C, C-lister, you know, someone like Daniel Lambert, maybe. Um, and then your D-listers are probably uh, your the so-called self-made freaks, sword mm-hmm. swallowers, fire eaters, snake charmers, uh, fat ladies, fat men. Um, there was a sort of hierarchy. Was it the alligator boy that, um, that could... Uh, roll cigarettes and smoke cigarettes one of those could that had no arms or legs could 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 like i remember saying could 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 roll cigarettes that's right um uh, and he was called uh i, I want to say torso man but that's not what he was called uh i can't prince aladdin or something yeah, i can't he, remember he, who he was oh <laughs> what's his name that's gonna that's gonna drive me mad uh <laughs> He appears in Todd Browning's film Freaks. You yeah. see, this is Prince. No, what's he called? But that was his thing. That was his whole performance. Was he could he could roll cigarettes and then smoke them? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, no hands, no arms, no, hands, no, arms yeah. no, no legs. And that was a quite a common uh, freak show act as well for so-called armless wonders. Um, one of their performances would be to show how they could roll cigarettes with their toes. Um, so yeah, there's all sorts of these sorts of uh, kind of tricks based on overcoming uh, a, a a disability or showing right, right, how right. we could live uh, a normal life through you know just different means. You got to give them credit though, because I mean they 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 were sharp enough to say, hey, you know what? I don't want to be stuck at home or in an institution somewhere. I want I want to be you know doing something productive and making money. Mm. Yeah, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. And I think that's what really shone through for me was how people turned their disabilities into assets. Uh They made the most out of uh, the world was designed against them. The world was literally designed against them. And they operated um, with what they had and they turned their disabilities into assets they made money, they found love, they found companionship, some found fame. Um, and so this is not a dark, there is darkness in this history, but uh-huh. there's also empowerment in this history um, and the fight for recognition 
um, in a world that was seemingly disinterested until they could see the talent of the great freak performers of the 19th century. What do you think? Um, like you say, you know, there's a lot of books written about this, you know, about this subject. And like you say, that movie Freaks, you know, came out. Uh, what do you think is Hollywood? Well, obviously, Hollywood's fascination with this. Mm. I think, I mean, when you say Hollywood, I instantly think of like the greatest showman. Right? Everyone, you know, everyone, I'm sure all your listeners have, have heard the greatest showman. Yeah. Um, and, and, and in many ways, that, that film for me exemplifies the problem um, with, with Hollywood and this subject. Because I personally think the more interesting story is the freak performers themselves, rather right. than P.T. Barnum. One of the problems with that film, and by the way, I'm not one of those historians that like really enjoys nitpicking films. I think, uh -huh. you know, they, they serve a function, but they very much sanitized that past. They uh -huh. idealized P.T. Barnum. And actually, you know, he was a complex man of his time. He first found freak show fame on the back of a deformed, paralyzed, uh, senile, elderly black slave, enslaved person called Joyce Heth who he lugged across America in 1835. She died on the job. And when she died, he had a public dissection of her body, uh, made a mint from it, started peddling the story about Joyce Heth as a 161-year-old nurse of George Washington, um, and really exploited this woman and even spread stories, which could have been true, that he um, fed her with whiskey, that he removed her teeth to make her appear like a 161-year-old woman. Uh -huh. So, you know, there, there's a darker side to P.T. Barnum. And I think, you know, in The Greatest Showman, they sanitize and they they create a hero out of a complex man. Uh -huh. And it would have been more powerful to explore the true history there. And in a film like Todd Browning's Freaks, they go to the other extreme. It arguably anyway they make the freak show into this sort of gothic horror film whereas uh -huh. actually it was also a respectable popular form of entertainment right. um in the 19th century endorsed by the kings and queens of europe and the presidents of america so for me the history is where the fascination lies and we connect to that history and the truth of what happened uh, is stranger and more entertaining than some of the fiction we we get in hollywood Let's talk about, uh, you know, we talked about the good parts on this. What's the dark part? But, I mean, what, what, you know, what, what was some of the mistreatment that these guys, that these people suffered? So, I mean, I always still come back to Julia Pastrana. She married uh -huh. the a man she thought loved her. Um, she, she said on her deathbed, he loved me for, for my sake. Um and when she died, you know, his actions kind of suggested otherwise, embalming his wife and displaying her. He married another bearded lady who performed alongside the the dead embalmed Julia Pastrana. Wow. Um, and Theodore Lent actually, you know, ended up going insane and dying in a, a mental asylum in Russia. Um, so, you know, arguably got his comeuppance. Someone like Joseph Merrick, you know, his extreme deformities, his rejections from society, being robbed on the continent. Someone like Maximo and Bartola, you know, they had uh, mental disabilities um, and they, they were very possibly brother and sister and they were legally married. They were displayed across Europe and America. Um, you know, they didn't have, you know, agency, not really. Uh -huh. um, so 
you know, there, 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 there is a sadness to a lot of this. And we, we, we have to be honest about that. Joyce Heth, you know, I was writing this about Joyce Heth, who was, she was around 85 years old when she was displayed. Barnum displayed her as 161 years old. He bought her. She Well, he bought the right to exhibit her. She was a, an enslaved person. And as I was writing the story, I kept thinking of my grandma, uh, who passed away just before the book was published. But my grandma was old. My grandma was frail. Um, she, you know, her mind wasn't the best that it, that it could have been. And the thought that someone would, could have displayed her around America with punters coming and poking her and prodding her, you know, really kind of brought it home to me that, you know, a, a lot of this wasn't, wasn't, you know, it's not all, all roses. Um, mm -hmm. But saying that, you know, we find they, lots of these three performers weren't victims. They weren't victims. They made the best out of their situation. Sure. Um, so yeah, there's darkness, but there's also there's also hope as well. You know, you talked about Tom Thumb. You talked about other bearded lady, Siamese twins. Who do you think, probably out of all, out of all the performers, was probably the most tragic? The most tragic. Um, I think it would have to be joseph merrick just okay. because of the, the extreme nature of his deformity right. i'm sorry yeah okay right i think right. so i feel for him even with the it was that with that film he did mm. you know i just i just I, I i just feel for him all over the place and just like you know it's the same thing with the alligator skin boy too because he he had that skin deformity and there was no yeah. way he could be out in public with that either mm. you know what was interesting and i you know you always wonder i know i was at uh, and i was in las vegas long time ago, probably about 15, 15 years ago, Circus Circus. And they still offered <laughs> a sideshow, you know, wow. to where they they had one of the wolf boys there. I didn't go in to see it because I didn't have time, but it, it shocked me because, you know, being so far in the future, but, you know, there's still a draw, though, because I was still standing there going, well, maybe I want to go in and see this guy, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, so it's it's still interesting to think that, that that's still going on. Definitely. And I'm, I had an interesting com conversation with this is when I was doing my PhD, uh, uh -huh. the, the actor Matt Fraser, who, who's uh -huh. actually an American horror story. Um, and he, he said to me as a disabled uh, actor, he was like, look, I'm always on display, whether I'm walking in the streets or not. People look at me. Uh, he's like, but where I when I put my disability on display, I can control how people look at me and I can sure. make money off of it. Um, and so it's very easy, I think, to kind of patronize or cast these individuals as, as victims. But uh -huh. th there is another perspective on it, um, which is not necessarily, you know, quite so, quite so, so, so negative. And I'm, yeah, I, 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 res I reserve judgment because I know it's a sensitive sensitive subject, but certainly in the 19th century, um, mm -hmm. these performers had little choice. And well, this was an know, arena. When you look at Hollywood, you got you, you have to look at the bright side of it all too. I mean, without this, go without having these, the, the, you know, the the, the dwarves in, in, in this, we wouldn't have a Wizard of Oz, you know, or, or a decent, you know, Munchkin Land, and we wouldn't have R two D two. Think of it that way, you know, mm. because who's going to fit in that who's going to fit in that you know that that thing so mm. i mean in a way although they're still kind of hollywood's still kind of exporting them 
it's still it's a better thing because they're doing better. You know what I mean? It's improved a lot than, than what it mm. was. Yeah, I, I hope so. And I'm, you know, be be interested to hear, uh, you know, the p perspective from uh, performers with, with with disabilities today. I mean, I don't, I I, I don't feel like I can I can comment on on it so right. much. Um, yeah, I know. I but, understand that. But I know, I know what you mean. But you do see more more acceptance of it now because like like they have the little couple and you know and all this is going on on, on TV and stuff. So mm. there's a lot more acceptance, obviously. But um, back then, and I can agree with you on that. Back then, people didn't see that stuff, so that's why it was so shocking to see it. Yeah, it was novel. It was uh, different. It was wondrous. It was exotic. It was uh, entertaining. And um, these guys were great performers, so they knew how to work a crowd. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, what fascinated me with the Siamese twins, though, is that they they were able to marry you know and 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 have functional lives and that mm. must have been really difficult to do and, and the women they married have to be really special you know what i mean because of the situation yeah and i mean they had, they had 21 children between them so they had a very large family um and uh, what they used to do was they'd have two houses and mm -hmm. when chang was in chang's house with his wife he was the master and Eng would stay quiet and then they'd rotate and they'd go to Eng's house and in his house he was Eng was the master and, and Chang would would stay quiet. Um, and yeah, you know, the, the, the ways in which they had to navigate um, their difference was their normalcy as well. You know, that's how, how they lived. And at the time, there was this sort of purient curiosity as to, you know, how did they have sex? Well, that's, and, yeah, I was going to say. You know, yeah, that, you know, that's the sort of, that, that always comes up. And that they kind of, they they retired from the freak show but then they kind of straddled these two worlds because they would go back to the freak show often displaying their their children as well um and they played off this their sort of domesticity and their normalcy off the outside of the freak show in the world of the freak show as well so they they kind of straddled these two these two worlds um the audiences that 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 would see these guys you know these these performers um did they ever i mean was there ever a time when you know that like i said the fascination was there to see them but was there ever anybody that literally got booed or anything like that you know of of the performers getting booed yeah or anything like uh, that uh you would get that in in the traveling fairs which you know so free performers would appear in theaters and music right. halls and seaside resorts you, any form of popular entertainment where you'd get kind of more booze and, and rowdy behavior would be in the traveling fairs which uh -huh. are much more informal uh displays and there there'd be drunken louts you know shouting and making all sorts of remarks and you know you got that in the freak show as well um and the, the audience could certainly be rowdy but you know often the the audience the victorian audience you had men women and children who were in attendance you had the upper classes the middle classes and the working classes this just transcended class um and so often it was quite respectable and more you would just have sort of like incredulous comments people asking questions about mm. 
you know, how did they live? Um, how did they get that way? Um, people desperate to touch the performers, to hug them, kiss them, uh, fondle their connecting ligament in the case of, <laughs> yeah. of Chang and Eng. You know, it was quite a tactile experience. Um, and in my book, I explore, I hone in on two different spectators who went to the freak show and their own reflections of the freak show, which were very different and tell us something interesting about how the Victorian audience perceived the freak show at the time. Fantastic. You know, this hour has blown by. And I mean, this has been incredible for me because like I said, I grew up reading about this stuff and hearing, you know, hearing my father's stories. Now, a question I ask people uh, as, as a journalist when, when I'm running a story about a business, if you were in Las Vegas, here's your chance now to be the, the greatest show. Right. If you were <laughs> in Las Vegas and you're sta- you, you, you have a store full of your books and you're standing on the strip and there's a couple of other guys that have you know, previously written books about about the freak performers. How do you get people to buy your book? How do I get people to buy my book? Um, I would say that if you are interested in exploring um, the the oh, I'm not doing a very good showman job now. Um, if you want, <laughs> let me start again. Okay. If you're interested in human stories, the freak performer behind the freak if you want tales of tragedy and tales of triumph read read the wonders um because it will take you it will centralize the stories of these freak performers their trials and their tribulations and in exploring their stories we resurrect their humanity we recenter uh, the marginalized in our history books and we tell a fascinating history not only about the rise and decline of the freak show across the centuries, but about the way in which the Victorian world operated. So mm-hmm. we learn a revisionist account with a focus on the, the the freak performers who created the wondrous age of the freak. I'll buy one right now. I'm good. Ah, oh, I love it. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Come in. Fact, I, am gonna get a co- I am going to get a copy of it because I, I just I, I just can't wait to to sit down and re- you know and, and get into it to read it. Um, how do people find you? How do people find me? Okay, so uh, at Dr. John Wolf on Twitter, uh, that's Wolf with two O's, LF. Um, or, you know, search me on Google. I've got, I do have a website, it's a, it's a bit basic, but it's www.johnwolf.co.uk. Um, and my details are there. Uh, if you're interested in some of my other work, I, sure. I've worked with Stephen Fry on uh, Audible books, which are available on audible.com, Stephen Fry's Victorian Secrets, Stephen Fry's Edwardian Secrets. If you're interested in true crime, also have a look on uh, audible.com uh, and search search my name. Well, so different ways. Your, how do people get your book? Uh, go to, I mean, just search it online. Amazon.com, although I'm, I'm sure I don't know whether I'm supposed to be advertising Amazon.com, but it is on Amazon.com, uh, available at, at all other good bookshops and great to support local local businesses as well. So if you could request to your local uh, bookshop that they get a copy or a few copies, that would be brilliant. I'd be awesome, very awesome, much appreciated. Awesome. Well, I know what I'm going to be reading this weekend. I'll tell you that right now. Fantastic, Thank you so much, and I would love at some time to have you on again to talk more about this. You know, we can we can get into the, the you know, even more of of the uh, performers and stuff and talk about that if that's okay. 
Any times. Lovely talking to you. To talk with you. All right. Well, thank you so much, and you have a good day. Thank you so much. Good rest of your evening, actually, because it's it's nine o'clock where you're at. So yeah. (laughs) So I'm just starting. It's one o'clock. All right. Thank you, sir. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right. That was pretty awesome, and uh, I loved every second of it. Uh, Monday, we are going to have Roger Spur come on here and talk about mud fossils. So that ought to be an interesting interview. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We're equal opportunity here. We're trying to get the word out about this show. Also, um, a California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team is a nonprofit organization. So for more, for, so uh, all the equipment for this that goes into this show, the mics, the lights, the the uh, the mixers and everything else that goes into the show comes out of my pocket and uh, you know uh, things are tight so if you guys could find it in your heart to donate a little bit to us to keep this show coming we're in our second season right now at paypal.me at California Haunts that would be great also YouTube is an issue in that you need a certain amount of subscribers in order to get a dedicated URL and uh, we don't have that right now. So if you try to search, if you try to find us on YouTube, no matter how you do it, you're not going to find us. It doesn't matter what, what you do or try. So the best way to do that to help me out would be to go to the website at www.californiahauntsradio.com and click on the video that's on the front page because I'm going to be updating today with this video and uh, or tonight with this video rather. And uh, you can get into YouTube from there, and then you can subscribe, because as soon as we hit uh, around 110 subscribers, we will be able to get our own URL for all our videos. So in the meantime, you can you can find everything going back for the last year, as far as shows go, on our website uh, and on the YouTube page once you get over there. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming today, and this was fantastic, and I'm going to try and get this gentleman back on, because I just had, I had a blast talking about these things. And uh, thank you so much, and I will see you on Monday at 6.30 p.m., the usual time. Have-